Well, I'm sure you have heard and probably even used these phrases multiple times in your life. One step forward, two steps back. It's like you're spinning your wheels. Or my favorite one, it's like you're sprinting full speed with your forehead against a brick wall. I, I, I like each of these because it's this great visual description of something that I think we all experience in our lives. It's this idea that though we are applying effort, though we're giving our energy, though we're producing and providing activity, we are seeing very little progress. I mean, each one of these has some idea of I'm taking a step forward. I'm trying to move forward, but I'm actually moving back. I'm trying to run with my legs, but I'm actually making no forward movement. I'm making no significant progress. Or, or, or you're, you're, you're taking and employing all of the energy that your car has and however many cylinders it has, and you're putting your floor to the floorboard in an effort to use that power, use that energy to move the vehicle forward through those tires. You're trying to push that thing forward. And yet the wheels are spinning. You're just not making progress. And I think we all experience that from time to time. And really the, the whole point of these idioms is not just to say that uh, we're giving energy without little forward progress. It's to say that when we are engaged in activities that we put energy to and we have no forward progress, that those activities are probably should be something that should be deemed as pointless or frivolous or invaluable or pointless or for you to just say, well, it's not really worth it. That's really the point of those, is to say that. Now, the Christian life is a life that I think should be fruitful and productive. There should be forward progress. There should be growth. There should be fruit being produced from your life, from your work, from your ministry. But I think all of us know that sometimes in some seasons, in some days, in some circumstances, or because of the surrounding realities around us, our efforts and our activity in our life as Christians there may be seasons where we don't see forward progress. We don't see as much fruit as we want. We don't see as much impact. We don't see as much coming out of our efforts as we would like to. And in the midst of that, we're tempted to do what these phrases do, which is to culminate them all and to say, you know, is it really worth it? I'm not making the strides I want to make. I'm not seeing the change I want to see in this person, even in my own life. Is it worth it? Should I for another idiom for you, throw the towel in. Should, should I give up? Should I stop this activity? And that only becomes more difficult the more challenging the environment becomes. I mean, it's one thing if I say you're spinning your wheels and you're imagining in your head that you're just backing out of your driveway and you know you got that corner of grass or that sprinkler always gives too much and you got this muddy patch and you get stuck there and now you're spinning your wheels. Okay, well, that's, that's not too big of a challenging circumstance to get out of. It doesn't seem that significant. But it's different if I were to say that you should envision that you're stuck on the side of a desert cliff and it's muddy all all around you and the storm has just begun and it's getting worse and worse and worse and it's going to be raining and downpouring soon and now you're spinning your wheels. Now does it seem like the effort is worth it? Does it seem like it's, it's worth the effort? I, I think a lot of us say it doesn't seem like it is. Maybe we should just hunker down and not do anything and just wait it out. What, what, what we're tempted to do as Christians is we're tempted as the world gets harder, more difficult, as our surrounding circumstances make it more challenging for us to make the forward progress that we might want to see, it becomes our temptation to not only grow weary, but to slow or cease completely stopping our activity that God has called us to do, the work of the Lord that God has called us to do, because we don't feel like it's making the impact that we want it to make. And we need to be careful as believers not to be tempted to that reality. In fact, we need to be encouraged to the opposite, that in the midst of the challenging and difficult times that we should be tenacious in pushing forward in the work of the Lord. And that's exactly what our passage today is going to point us to. So if you would go with me to 1 Corinthians 15, 58, it's a very well-known passage, a passage that hopefully you have memorized. I know uh, many people have it memorized, our kids have it memorized, they learn it in Rwanda. It's a good verse. You should know it. And of course, this verse starts off with the word, therefore. Therefore, and this is pointing back a long teaching that Paul is doing to the church in Corinth on the doctrine of the resurrection. 
You see, he is trying to persuade them and get them to look back to this reality that uh, the resurrection is a real thing, that Christ has been raised, and because we are united with Christ, therefore we will be raised. That is the, the, the therefore that's pointing back, the reality of the resurrection. So he's starting there, and he says, given the reality of the resurrection, the true statement that he already gave, he says, therefore, my beloved brothers, these are believers he's speaking to, he's saying, you believe this, therefore, beloved brothers, what should you do? You be steadfast. It's the idea of not being subject to change. You're, you're, you're stable, you're firm, you're, you're unwavering. I mean, you're, you're steadfast. And then he reiterates that with another word for a similar concept. He says, be steadfast and also be immovable. Immovable, not able to be moved. It means you're locked in. I mean, you're anchored. No one can shift you. No one can shake you. No one can uproot you. You're, you're immovable. Be steadfast and immovable given these realities. But then he says, now there needs to be something that you are doing. Always, continually here, be abounding, overflowing, producing what? Be abounding in the work of the Lord. There's a, a labor that he's calling us to. Be abounding in the work of the Lord. And there's a purpose behind that says at the end of this, knowing, knowing that that work that you're doing, that labor that you're doing in the Lord is not in vain. That's not pointless. That's not frivolous. It's not in vain. See, the, the circumstance of 1 Corinthians 15 and this whole reason for this letter is really interesting uh, in the fact that he's giving them the doctrinal reason and justification for the resurrection. And the reason why he does that is because the church in Corinth there were people there who had denied the resurrection. I mean, there are people sitting out in the pews in the church in Corinth that are saying, I don't believe that we will be resurrected with Christ. Now, I don't think that that's our circumstance. I don't think that we have many people out here today saying, I don't believe in the resurrection of Christ. But what's interesting about this is that we don't really know in Corinth where this came about. Where did this come from? We don't know if someone from outside the church brought this in and was trying to convince the people in the church that this wasn't true? We don't know if this was from inside the church. We don't know if it was someone from inside the church that was a Jewish believer or a Gentile believer. We don't know if this was someone intentionally trying to deceive and lead astray, or if it was someone with a sincerely held belief that they thought that this was true and they were just trying to convince someone and Paul is saying, no, that's an error. We don't know the circumstances of it. All we know is that in this church in Corinth, there was a group of people who were believing in doctrinal error. Now, we are not denying the resurrection, but I think you can see that we are at a unique precipice, a time in our life and in our culture where the attacks and the assaults on the church and against Christians to get believers to believe errors, to abandon the truth, to forsake right doctrine is more than ever. I mean, think about the things that people are trying to reject. They're looking at the created order and they are doing the same thing that Satan did where he's looking at us and saying, did God really say, did God really say what he said about this thing? I mean, did God really say there's only two genders? Did he really say that? Did he say that a relationship sexually should only be between one man and one woman in the, in the covenant marriage relationship? Did he, did he really say that? Did he really say that, that men and women are equal in worth but have different roles in the home and in the church? Is that really what God said? Is that really his order that he's established? Does God really want you to give of your hard-earned money and not spend it on yourself, but give it to others to be generous? Is that, is that really what he wants you to do? Did God really say these things? Did he, does God really think this way about race or ethnicity or equality? Does he really care about justice? I mean, does God really say these things? And then they take it a step further and they say things like, well, because of that, not only are they rejecting the created order, but they're rejecting the creator. They're saying, not only did God really say, but is God really? Is God really loving? And that he would punish me for my sins when it's something that's culturally acceptable or even praiseworthy? I mean, is God really just to, to punish what people just adopt and accept as normative in our culture? That doesn't seem right. That seems like God is unjust and unloving and not good. Why would he put these parameters on me from enjoying my happiness? This is the context of our circumstance that we find ourselves in, that whether from outside of the church 
or inside of churches, we have people who are trying to weather from sincerely held beliefs or because they're false teachers and they're trying to deceive, distract us from the truth, pull us away from the truth to believing lies, falsehoods, things that are incorrect according to God's revealed truth. And I think all of us can point to, oh yeah, I know that one guy on, on my block, I have that neighbor, I have that coworker, I have that friend who is taking this to, to such a degree that they're always in my face and they're, they're, they're trying to convince me or they're arguing online or whatever it is. And, and you understand that that circumstance is challenging, but all of a sudden, it seems like in the last few years, it's now become on a societal level. That now it's like this uniculture where everyone is trying to convince Christians that what they say and what they believe and what they think is wrong and that it's not just enough to, to turn a blind eye to what they think. We must now affirm, agree, accept, and promote their lies. That's where they want us to go. We don't want to just, we don't want to just say, ah, the resurrection is not true. We got we to be bold about it. I mean, they want us to be with them on all these things, and they're now trying to force us to get to that. That's the circumstance that we are all dealing with, and it has been an increase or a ramp up of pressure that I think many of us feel. We all feel this pressure to get us to cave on what we know is doctrinally true and right, revealed from us from God, in order to cave to these things. We feel that pressure, and it's coming up against us. Which is why it's appropriate, even for us, that the command that Paul gives is the same thing that we need. The two imperatives of to be steadfast and immovable in the face of that. No matter how intense the pressure is, how tight it feels like it's getting, we need to remain steadfast, locked in, grounded. But in something specific, in God's revealed truth, what he says is true. Not what they think is true, what he says is true, what he declares to be true. So I want you to write down it this way for your first point. These difficult times, we need to be unmoved, of course, in agreement and acceptance of divine revelation. So say it this way, establish yourself in revealed truth. You need to establish yourself in revealed truth. Now, I understand that truth is something that God wants to ground you in and root yourself in, but you have a role to play in this. You have a, a part in this. And I'm saying that you need to take your part seriously and recognize the reality of the circumstance of where we are so that you would be established and grounded and rooted and unmoved in God's revealed truth. Um, I still have, uh, I, I have two young daughters, and so we go to the beach, and uh, one of the things that we always do, I don't know, I feel this has been happening for generations, is we play a game where we all walk up into the sand, not, not the dry sand that, that stays pretty still, but the sand where the water, the waves are crashing on, and we just stand there, and the whole point of this game is to see who can stand the longest without being moved. That's, that's the idea. And so we stand there, and as each consecutive wave comes, it kind of erodes the sand around our feet. We sink deeper and deeper, and we start to grow more and more unsteady until finally someone kind of falls over, and that's the end of the game. And I think you get the point of what the illustration tagline would be here. It's like, well, you need to stand firm in the midst of the waves or something clever and catchy or something like that. And I think if that's the way that you're perceiving this command to be steadfast and immovable, that you need to change your perspective a bit. Because it's not just some cutesy little game where you play with your kids and you're just thinking, okay, so what do I need to do is I just need to dig my feet in a little bit deeper. Just need to ground myself a little bit deeper in the truth in order to withstand that. Saying, okay, well, that, that, sounds, that sounds fine, but that's not enough. And why is it not enough? Well, because it's not just a little game. This is what God has called us and commanded us to do. He is saying, in that spot, you do not move. No matter what comes, no matter what wave is gonna come, no matter what's going to happen to the sand around you, you cannot move. You need to stay firm and stay established in that position. Now, if that were the case, you would start to think a little bit differently. You'd be like, okay, I really need to think about this. Like, do I need to dig the sand around me? Do I need to build like a moat or something to keep the waves from coming in? Like, how am I, do I need to get a little wood platform and put it here so that I can be stable? How am I going to do this? But as I described to you, I think the current reality and the circumstance that we're in is not a normal, typical day at the beach anymore. 
I'm talking about the 100-year storm. I'm talking about the El Ninos with the 15-foot crashing shore breaks that are every single time trying to wash away the shore at every single break. That's the kind of reality that we all sense and feel and know is about us with the assaults coming after us, wave after wave after wave to move us from our position. Now, in that situation, if you were imagined to God say, now, in the midst of that storm, in the midst of those waves and those winds and those crashes and those attempts to unmove you and unseat you from your position, be steadfast, don't move. How would you think about what you're gonna do? Well, you'd probably be calling in the backhoes, you'd be digging giant holes in the ground, you'd be pouring concrete footings and putting concrete posts in, you'd be building a dock with multiple layers and, and you'd wanna make it as firm and as strong and as established as you could because your goal is to be steadfast in the midst of that craziness. It's not enough just to dig your feet in a little bit. You really need to be established. You really have to go deep. You really need to know the truth if you're gonna survive the onslaught of people trying to get you to Believe what you know to be true. How do we do this? What are some practical ways in which we do this? Well, turn with me to Colossians chapter two. Colossians chapter two, just a few books to the right from 1 Corinthians, Colossians chapter two. Paul is speaking here and he is gonna say that he is, is speaking to his people that he's never been with. He's saying, I want you to know the great struggle that I have for you and those in Laodicea for those who have not seen me face to face, he's never met these people and he wants their hearts to be encouraged, being knit together in love. And then he wants this specific goal to be reached. He really wants them to have something. What is that something? It says in verse two, Colossians chapter two says, he wants them to reach all the riches. It's like to attain to, to all the riches of the full assurance and understanding of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. I mean, he wants them deep. He doesn't want them surface level, just on the top of the sand. I mean, he wants them really to dig in, to, to have that full assurance, that full understanding. He wants that, that knowledge of God's mystery, which is clearly revealed in Christ. And it says, in whom all are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and of knowledge. I mean, he wants you to know it all. I want you to be so rooted, so grounded, so established in the truth. That's his desire. Now look at verse four. It says the reason why he wants that he says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. He's saying, I, I want you to be established in the truth so that you would be able to stand up against those that are trying to dissuade you and delude you with arguments that sound reasonable, that sound good against the truth. And he says in verse five, he says, though I'm absent in body, I'm with you in spirit. And then he says this, he says, and I'm rejoicing to see your good order and to see your firmness in the faith in Christ. So he's saying, you guys are doing a good job. Right now, you're doing good. You, you, you've established yourself, you're rooted, you're grounded, but I need you to go deeper. I need you to establish yourself deeper so that you might not be deluded. It says in verse six, therefore, as you receive Christ, that's what you were taught, so walk in him, rooted, is grounded, built up, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, according to the truth, according to what the apostles taught, according to what we're teaching here today, abounding in thanksgiving. And then again, it's like, he said all this, he says, you're doing good, so I want this for you, I want you to be established. And then it says in verse eight, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So, so on one hand, we have Paul laying this out for us and saying, hey, you're doing a good job. You're in the word, you know the truth, you're in a good church, you're getting good teaching, you're doing well, you're firm, you've withstood some of it, but be aware. Be aware that you need to go deeper. And he says it twice in here, so that you may not be deceived, so that you may not fall to the cunning, deceitful schemes of human and of demons that are trying to dissuade you from the truth that you need to be aware that that is coming for you and that it is here and you need to be established. So if I were to give you some sub points here, one of the things that you need to do as a believer, it doesn't matter where you're at in your Christian life. If you're a new believer or if you're firm and solid, you need to first realize, like Paul says in this passage, that we are all susceptible to being deceived by human cunning and deceitful schemes if we are not grounded in the truth. We need to recognize, realize, and get it in our own heads 
that it's possible for us, if we depart from the truth, that we will not be grounded enough to withstand. That a short season or period of your life or a time where you are not gonna be grounded in the truth or you're conceding the truth because of some emotional reality or something you've heard, that it's possible for you to be deceived and to fall. And that's not what he wants. He wants you not only to recognize that you're susceptible to this and so be grounded in the truth, he wants you to be on guard against this, to set up some parameters, some provisions in your own life, some standards in which you can continue to ground yourself and establish yourself in the truth. What's one of those things? We'll go down a few more verses here. Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 1, says, if it's, been, if it's true that you've been raised in Christ, a similar circumstance to our passage, it says, what should you do? Well, you should seek the things that are above. It's one of the ways you do this. That's where Christ is. That's where you should be looking. He's seated at the right hand of God. So set your minds now on things that are above. The idea is where Christ is, things that are above where Christ is, and not on things of this earth. So how do we protect ourselves and further establish ourselves in the midst of this difficult and challenging day that we're in with the onslaughts of the waves coming for us? Well, we need to make sure that we're keeping our minds set on the things above and not on the things of the earth. We need to guard our minds from those things that are coming in and now actively set our minds on the truth. Now, I'm not saying that this is a, a, a universal, total change of life for you. This isn't now all things that have any reference that the world are cut out of your life forever. Okay, we're, we're, in the, we're, we're in the world, but we should not be of the world. We still have to be here. It doesn't mean you, you become a monk of some kind and just peruse the shelves in the CBI library and read all day long. Okay? You still have to be engaged in the world. But what this does mean is that we need to be careful, on guard, of all the stuff that we intake, to be careful that what we are intaking is not just constantly of worldly, earthly thinking that's getting us to question and rethink and reconsider that which we know to be revealed from God. If you have a steady state diet of falsehood and lies and deception, that is eventually gonna impact you. You need to be careful if you are just constantly locked into some of these things and listening to them all the time. Some of us seek them out. Some of us go after them. Some of us double down on these things when things get hard. We say, man, things are looking weird out there. Let's double down in the political commentators. But the reality is, is that the Bible tells us what we need to do is we need to firmly establish ourselves in the truth more than anything. And what really scares me, and I think you guys know, and, and I think should scare you to some degree, is not, not necessarily the, the big meetings that we gather together and we hear the things that are not true. I mean, we know Typically, if an atheist is gonna teach us a, a, a lecture in a college classroom, that we're, we're not gonna get the truth there. We're gonna get a desire to, to move us in a different direction. So we have our guards up actively. I mean, if you don't have your guards up actively in those situations, you're definitely not doing the right thing. You gotta have those up. You've gotta, you've gotta be focused on the truth in those situations and not be given to what they have to say. But what scares me is the passive engagement that we all have every day. When we're sitting there and we're mindlessly, passively not thinking about what we're intaking, what we're eating, and we're just mindlessly scrolling through social media. We're passively just streaming in whatever content it is that we want to hear from people and voices who have their eyes on earthly things, and we're just consuming it and we're eating it. Or we're just locked into the news cycle of a bunch of people who are earthly thinkers and it's just always playing in the background and it's just, you're just passively intaking it all of the time. And we're just thinking that that's not gonna have some sort of saturating effect on us that's gonna pull our eyes down day after day after day. It is, it's gonna have an impact on us. So how do we deal with this? Well, we need to get our eyes up. One of the things that we have to do in that context is be careful of what we are consuming. Anything that you are consuming that is from an earthly perspective, you better have your filters up. You, are, you better be able to be actively engaged to be able to look at it and say, is this true according to God's word or is it not? And if you can't say that, then you shouldn't be intaking it passively. Don't just sit there passively and take stuff in unless you're actively engaged. 
Okay? Sometimes those things are helpful for us to know, but only if we're actively engaged. But more so than that, we need to increase our load of what we're taking in actively according to godly things, things that get our eyes on Christ. And we preach it over and over and over again because it's necessary to, but we need to be more in the word. We need to be doing more intense study. We need to be picking up more Christian books, listening to more good podcasts about the Bible. We need to be engaged more in-depthly in the teaching and preaching ministries of our church, more closely knit with other believers that are gonna get your eyes up. They're gonna push your eyes to what is good in Christ, and that will help you to be now established firm in the truth. I mean, even being involved in the teaching ministries of this church, there is a bunch of pastors here whose goal it is to root you and establish you in sound doctrine. And if you're not partaking of that sufficiently, then you might be more susceptible, like Paul says, to be eroded in your faith because you're not rooted in that. In Colossians chapter two, Paul, I think, gives us something, and he affirms this in other places in the word of what is the best way in which to do this is is the context of the church. He says in Colossians chapter two that his desire is to come to those he's not met and to teach them, to teach them. He says the same thing in Ephesians chapter four. We all know it. He says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's the role of the church. If you want to have the fast track way of establishing yourself in the truth more deeply, it's through the ministry of the church, the teaching ministry in particular of the church. It says this is for the building up of the body of Christ. And then look what it says, until we attain to the unity of faith, that's what he's talking about earlier, and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. You want to be established, you want to be firm, you want to have all those riches of knowledge and go deep, you need to be involved in the teaching ministries of the church to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ. But here's the next verse that we don't always think about because we know that one pretty well is this, verse 14 of Ephesians 4. So that when you participate in all that and you're growing in it and you're gleaning from it, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. You want to be established and you want to be firm, then you need to double down in your position here at the church. You need to make sure that you are committed to a church, that you are locked into groups that are teaching, that you're participating more in the studies that are available to you than consuming the worldly, earthly things that are available to you. If you're not doing that, then you're not doing the effort to establish yourself in the truth, getting your eyes up and not down. So we need to be involved, we need to be into the word, we need to be studying, but we need to be involved in the church. But let me just give you one more thing because I think that's all easy for you to agree with. And it's definitely easy when you're, you're sitting out here and I experienced this too and Pastor Michael say something from the pulpit and I can say, I agree with that. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm convinced of that. I know that's true. It's another thing when it hits your own life and you have some sort of emotional connection to it some sort of pain that's caused because of someone saying something to you. And what you need in those situations is you're not, you don't just need to be established in a church and doing more in your reading, get your eyes up. You, you, you need to have a, a real resolve and a conviction in your own heart that you're not gonna be moved, okay? What do I mean? I think it's easy and for us to all agree. How is a person saved? Well, you, to be saved, you need to repent of your sins and you need to put your full trust in Christ and his work. There you go. So therefore, a person who has not repented of their sins and not put their full trust in Christ is not saved. We could agree with that, and we can all nod and say, yep, that's true. Which means that that person who has not repented of their sins and not put their trust in Christ, that they're not going to be in the presence of Christ. It's easy to affirm that, but when you are sitting on the deathbed of a family member whom you love, and they have rejected Christ, not repented, and not put their faith in Christ, that pull that you have to begin to concede on that truth, or you've watched a loved one pass away who has not been of Christ, for you to say, is that really true? Can you really accept that in and of yourself and be fully convinced and grounded in that truth given the challenge of what that's gonna bring in your own life? That's where we need to be, that's much harder. Or when you have a daughter or a son or a niece or a nephew 
or a sibling or a friend of yours who tells you, I've decided to change my gender, change my sexual orientation, and participate in this lifestyle. Well, now all of a sudden it becomes a lot harder for you to be rooted and established in the truth because now that's going to break a relationship potentially. If you say that's not good, that's not true, that's not right, there's now a pull, an emotional pull for you that's going to try to lead you to the point in your own flesh of conceding to that truth because of how you feel. I think much of our temptation is based off of a good Christian character components, compassion, and our view of love leads us to look at those situations and says, I just want to be compassionate. I just want to be loving, but not at the expense of the truth. When you have situations like that in your life that are pulling at you, you need to have that firm conviction in your own mind that you are going to be steadfast and you're going to be immovable. You're going to be established in the truth no matter what. You're going to have that predetermined conviction to not be moved, no matter what. That doesn't mean you're not kind. doesn't mean you're not loving. doesn't mean you're not compassionate, but you will not be moved from that position. This is why I phrase this point. You need to establish yourself in revealed truth because I don't want you to be confused with perceived truth because that's what the world is doing. They're saying, well, my truth and what I think is true and what I think is right based off of my experience and what I perceive and my reality is true. And we also have that same tendency as believers. We have that same tendency as believers to say, well, in my experience and in my feelings and based off of my emotions and my affections and my proclivities, I think this makes the most sense. That's not what we're asking you to do. We still have the flesh in us, though we also have the spirit. We need to rely first and foremost on God's revealed truth and be established in that and not what we perceive to be true, whether from the outside or from ourselves. So to withstand the waves, to deal with the difficult times, and to be tenacious in it, we need to be established in the truth. Double down in your time in the church and protect your mind, keeping your mind focused on the things that are above. Now, just for me as a person, when I, when I hear, man, the waves are getting hard and the, the culture's crushing in and the pressure's getting tight, I mean, like, the natural like, gut like, instinct is to like, hunker down, close all the doors, lock ourselves in, and we're going to withstand this storm together. I mean, it's like batten down the hatches. We're going to get through the storm unmoved. That's how we're going to deal with this. I mean, let's build a wall around the church. Let's not let anybody in, and let's never let anybody leave because it's too strong of waves. We're going to get sucked away. Let's, let, let, that's what we should do. That's, the, that's like the natural, I feel like, inclination when you hear this. But that's not where this verse takes us, and that's what not... It's not what God would want for you in the midst of all this. Look at the next section of this text. It says, not only should we be steadfast and immovable, it says we should always be abounding in the work of the Lord. Be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Does this not seem like a dichotomy to you or a contradiction? It's like he's saying, don't ever be moved and always be moving. He's like saying, jump as high as you absolutely can with all of your energy and effort, just as long as your feet don't leave the ground, right? It's, it's kind of what it seems like, but that's not what's being said. He's not saying that we should be unmoved so that we never move. The idea here is that we are being grounded and unmoved in our position in the truth, that we are, we are unmoved in our doctrinal position, not just so that we would not be moved, but that from that strong position, we would have an anchored place to return to, to go out and make progress. That we'd be able from that firm position to move forward. It's the difference between the dock being a place that's just there to withstand the waves so that you can be safe and secure, and the dock being a forward place of advancement where we send out ships into the sea to do the work. The reason why we're firm and established is not just so that we're safe and cloistered and protected, it's so that we can do the work, so that we can continue to do the work, knowing that we have that safe harbor, that anchorage that we can return to that is stable and steadfast in the moving that from that position we go out. So like the Corinthians, we must be told even in the midst of 
this struggle that we're in, that we should not stop our activity, slow it or cease it, but we should increase it. And so that's how I want you to phrase point two. We need to increase your effort in the struggle. Don't decrease your effort. Don't stop your effort. Don't hide yourself because of the storm. Increase your effort in the midst of the struggle. Here's some things you can additionally write down. How do we do that? What does that look like? What does that look like in the, in the Christian life? Titus 2.14, you don't need to turn there, but you can write it down. I'll read it for you. Titus 2.14 says, Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself. It's the work, the reason why it is. Purify for himself a people for his own possession. They're his. He owns us. Who are zealous for good works? Who are zealous for good works? You want to know what it looks like to increase in your effort in the struggle? Maybe one of the things that you need to do first and foremost is that you need to develop that zeal for the work of the Lord. Develop that passion. Develop that excitement for what it is that God has called you to do. I think many people in doing the work of the Lord and fighting against the struggle and the difficult days that we have begin to grow weary and we don't feel that excitement anymore for it. And in that sense, we need to be praying and asking God, give us the zeal to do what you've asked us to do. And like Paul does, he doesn't say, because it's super exciting or because it's easy or because it's the most productive and effective thing ever. No, it's because we've been redeemed by the Lord and are his possession and he's asked us to do it. The motivation behind our work is not that it's just gonna be productive and fruitful it's that we're doing it for the Lord. So we need to be excited about our work. But it also looks like 1 Thessalonians 4.1. 1 Thessalonians 4.1 says, Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. That you never rest on your laurels and think that what you're doing now is sufficient that you're always looking with an eye for how you can increase or move ahead that which you're already doing. Say you're in Bible study, how can you get more out of Bible study? Say you're involved in sub-congregational ministry, how can you get more of that? Say you do the DBR every single day, how can you do better at that? How can you increase? You're doing well, but do more and more. Increase that. Increase your effort in the Lord. Say you're reading the book, maybe you take notes while you're reading a book. Say you talk to someone about it while you're reading the book. Increase, do more and more. Don't just get excited about the work and ask for excitement about the work and push through that excitement because of what Christ has done, but now seek to do more, to increase. Or it looks like Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.10 that clearly says that it's by the grace of God that he is what he is. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me is not in vain. Paul is clearly saying, he's saying, I understand that, that my, my position is, is not because I'm great or because I went to some great pharisaical school or because I'm an apostle. He's saying, it's totally because of God's grace. He's, he's with us there, and he's saying, but that's not in vain. He says, it's not purposeless. He didn't waste that. He didn't waste God's redemptive grace in his life, pulling him out of his life of persecuting the church to serve the living God. He didn't waste that. He says in, contra in contrast, he says, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. He, he was committed to working harder than anyone else. And we don't often get there in our lives like we should. We say, you know what, that's gonna be hard. And so I'm going to back off a little bit. Well, that's for that person. They have the opportunity to work hard because of their position or their life or whatever. I'm not, I'm not going to go there. We, we don't need to have that mindset. We need to have the mindset that Paul had and say, well, we're not only going to be zealous for good works, passionate about them, seeking in the things that we're already doing to do more and more, but we're going to work harder at it. We're not going to waste the Lord's grace in our lives that he's given us. And by his power, we are going to expend ourselves increasing in our effort in the work. Now, just to be super clear, I'm clearly not talking about just like work, work. I'm not just saying like, tomorrow I hope all of you start your jobs at 4 a.m. and work until midnight, okay? I'm not talking about, I'm talking about specific work and, and that work can be to the Lord, but I'm talking, about, I'm talking about the work of the Lord. That's the caveat here. It's not just general work. We're talking about the, Lord, the, the, the work that the Lord has given us to do. 
I mean, the work of the Lord, this is essentially the way I describe it. This is the work that is directed by him. This is the work that he's given all of us to do. That, that which is codified and clear and defined with boundaries in his word. He says, I want you to do these things. I, I, I want you to not forsake the fellowship of people together. I want you to give, right? I want, you to, I want you to gather in community with one another. I want you to sit underneath the teaching of the word. I want you to forsake sin, right? The list goes on and on and on. And what's so hard about this is that if I were to say, well, what is the work of the Lord then? Well, it's pretty much the entirety of the Bible. I mean, even if we were to go to the, the Great Commission and we were to say, okay, what's the end part of the Great Commission? Teaching them all that I have commanded them to do. I mean, that's, all is a lot. So, so what is the Lord? Well, it's anything prescribed in the word that you should be doing that is directed by God for your activity for him. Evangelism, fellowship, reading, studying, all the things that we already talked about. That's the work of the Lord. We should be seeking in whatever it is that God puts before us as we're reading, as we're listening to sermons, that we are going to seek to apply that and work that into our lives in an increasing way. Continually, always abounding, increasing in the midst of the struggle, not giving up, but pushing in harder. But there's also a, a different type of work that we do. It's not work of the Lord. It's maybe work in the Lord. It's not necessarily directed by him, but we can direct it to him. And that's kind of the idea of Colossians 3, 16 and 17. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The word, the, what's codified, what's written down, what's established. Let that dwell in you richly so that here, you teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. It's not your wisdom. That's, that's God's wisdom. The word of Christ dwelling richly in you so that you may do that. Let's, let's have the word be at the center. That which is directed by him, prescribed to us that we should do, that's first on the list. That's the work we should be engaging in and increasing in. But then he says in verse 17, and, and whatever you do, essentially like everything else that's not prescribed, right? whether that's in word or in deed, do everything now. In the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him. So our, our work can be that which is directed by him, and that should be first on the list, that which he says in his word we should do. But then our daily labor, our jobs, our work, our business, our responsibilities at home, our raising of our kids, our making meals, whatever it may be, can be directed to him as worship. And that also is work given unto the Lord, to him. The work of the Lord and the work to the Lord. Each of those things should be things that in the midst of the struggle, we are not seeking to pull back on, we're seeking to increase. We're seeking to push forward from that strong position. I know it's hard, um, it's hard for me even to think like, well, okay, well, what does that really look like? Like, I don't, that's like a big category. Like, oh, it's just everything in the Bible, do that. And everything you do in your life, do that to the Lord. Like, that's really hard. Like, what does that tangibly look like? Again, I think the Bible is very good to us here. God is so kind to give us what I like to call like a cheat code here, a fast track of what this looks like. So turn with me to Philippians chapter three. It says, you wanna, you wanna know what this looks like? You wanna have uh, an example? He's gonna give us an example. He's gonna say, here, here's the example you need that you can follow to know what this looks like, to follow someone who's established in the truth and increasing in the struggle. Philippians three, starting in verse 17 Paul, addressing those in Philippi, says, Brothers, believers here again, join in imitating me. He says, imitate someone who is doing this. He says, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So not only imitate him, but others that are doing the same work that he's doing and doing it with the same ferocity and tenacity that he's doing, those that are established like he's doing, do that. Look at them. That's your example. That's what you look at. You want a tangible example? Don't just look inward, right, to try to figure out how to, how to do it. Look outward to those that are living amongst you who are an example. And he says in verse 18, to the contrary of this, for, for many people of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies as the cross of Christ. What are you saying? He's saying, well, there's a group of people that you shouldn't be looking to. They're, they're me and my compatriots who do the work Look to us, don't look to them, because what is their, what's their end state? Their end state is, the end is, their end is destruction. The God 
Their God is the belly and the glory is their shame. And those are the people with their minds set on earthly things. So, so they have their minds set on earthly things. Don't imitate them, imitate us because, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. They're looking up. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. He says, imitate us because we're looking up and we're looking forward to the ultimate reality. God's revealed truth and that work has a goal and an end. Don't do what they're doing and keeping your eyes down. And then he says in verse one of chapter four, therefore my beloved brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. How are they to stand firm? You, You can imitate those that are here. Now, all of us here in a church this size should have someone that we can look to and say, you know what, I want to imitate that person. I want to imitate my leader in my small group. I want, to, I want to imitate that pastor, this godly gal, this godly guy that I have seen walk faith with the Lord. They're always seeming to be able to push through the struggles and the onslaught and the storm and remain consistent, firm and established and continue to increase without growing weary. I want to look at them and I want to follow after their pattern of life. Listen to what they do, hear from them, and implement what they do. That is what Paul is telling us. It's a helpful tool for us, not just to to gaze inwardly and say, how can I do this better? Yes, we should be praying. Yes, we should be seeking God in these things, but to, to look at the examples that are right before us. Find someone that you can imitate that'll help you to increase. And at the bare minimum, be engaged in community within the church where you will spur one another on to love and good deeds to continue to spur one another on consistently to keep going in the midst of the struggle, to not decrease, but to increase your effort, though it gets hard. You need that. We all need it. You you might be thinking, yeah, but that's really easy, though, if it's coming from the Apostle Paul, right? Think of the Apostle Paul. He's an apostle. Think of all the work he did. He increases his effort, and look how much fruit he gets out of it. I mean, he wrote most of the, old, the New Testament, right? Think about the thousands of people that were once him, the preaching ministry that he had. Look at that fruit. Isn't it easy to say we should increase when there's so much fruit from that ministry? Or, or it's easy for me to say as a pastor, right? It's easy for you, Pastor Doug, to say, because you're a pastor, and you're standing on a platform, and you're telling people things, right? I don't have that position, You have more fruit because of your position, because you went to school, because you did this. I don't have that much fruit in my life. And you know what? When I give all this energy and I give all this effort, I don't see that kind of fruit. And and, and so for me, I'm just not sure if it's worth it. When I increase my labor, you know, it's not that impactful. It's It's not that productive. It's not that fruitful. I think Paul knows this, and I think he knows this as an apostle, and I know it as a pastor, that just because you might be doing more doesn't mean that you're always bearing the fruit you want to bear. I mean, think about how many times Paul went to the synagogues first to preach to the Jews and how many rejected him. Think about how many times he was kicked out of town and left for dead and beaten. Just because he was doing more didn't mean that his impact was necessarily always fruitful in the right area. Sure, he bore more fruit as he increased, but he also dealt with a lot more pain, which is why I think it's interesting he switches the terms here. He doesn't say just work. He says, now this is labor. When you give it your strenuous effort, your sweat and your blood, and you're laboring at the work of the Lord, when this is hard and it's difficult, well, then he says, the next session, section of 1 Corinthians 15, 58, is that we need to be, make sure that we're aware and know. We need to know that in the Lord, Your labor, your hard work, your effort, your diligence, it's not pointless. It's not in vain, is what he says. You might think that if you were to double down on this and you were to push harder and do more, that it's not going to produce something. And he says, even if that's the case, it's not in vain. And so I want you to write it down this way for point number three. It's not in vain because it does have significance. And we need to realize that our effort is significant. Realize that your effort is significant. When you labor in the Lord, your work is not for nothing, even if it's not producing what you want it to produce. 
Even if it's not bearing the fruit that you want it to produce, we want it to bear fruit. We all should desire and pray for our fruit to be multiplied, for it to be a multiplicity of good things coming from our labor. And yet there are times and seasons where it doesn't. And in those situations, we need to be careful to keep this in our mind that our effort is not in vain. Now, why is our effort not in vain? Well, simply put, as simply as we can say it, the reason why your effort is not in vain is because your effort is in the Lord. And anything you do, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain, why does that matter? Well, because here's the thing. If you think of it that when you pass this earth, if there's no significant impact, well, then my labor dies with me. But here's the reality is that because you are in the Lord and the work that you're doing is in the Lord, and we happen to have a Lord that exists alive forever and persists, our work will also persist. The energy and the effort and the labor that you give does not go away because Christ doesn't ever go away. And because you are united with him and because he rose and because we will rise, our work persists with him. You are his workmanship and he keeps his work with him. And the work that you do in him, he keeps that forever. Everything that you do to the praise of his glorious grace, whatever labor you are giving that is unto him, directed at him to be worshiped for him, increasing in energy is given to him and it's gonna persist with him in glory. And he's gonna be surrounded by not only you, his workmanship, but all of the things that you did in response to him for redeeming you. And he's saying, be faithful with that. Do more of that, increase in that and don't think it's pointless. Because not only does it persist with him, but he's also going to reward you for it. That it might not have the temporal impacts here on this earth that you want, but it is going to have eternal impacts. And it's going to persist for you, and it will be worth it for you when you are united with him in your glorified body in the resurrection. It's not insignificant. He sees it, he knows it, and he values it. And he's looking for you to do more. Turn with me one final passage. 2 Timothy 4. 2 Timothy 4, starting in verse 1. This is is Paul talking to young Timothy, young pastor. And and I think the the scenario here is that he is being discouraged. His ministry is hard. He's new at this. He's young. People are looking down on him for his youth. He's having a hard time persisting and keeping going with the work, maybe because his fruit is not as apparent as it should be, maybe because he's not getting the results that he wants to get. And so Paul says to him as an encouragement, he says, I charge you, Timothy, here, in the presence of God and Jesus Christ, who is judge over the living and the dead, by his appearing in his kingdom, to preach the word. He's like, do the work. That's the pastor's work here. Preach the word. That's what he's to do. And he says, to be ready in season and out of season. It's like, do the work and be ready to do the work and continue to do the work when it's easy and when it's hard. When you scatter the seed and the, the, the plants sprout up and they're fruitful and productive, and when you scatter the seed and nothing happens, and it just lays there fallow, be ready and continue the work in season and out of season. It says, reprove, rebuke, and exhort, and do it with complete patience and teaching, knowing that sometimes it's going to stick and sometimes it's not. Sometimes your work and your labor and your effort, it's going to be effective. Sometimes it's not. Be patient. Keep going. And he says, because there is times that are going to be harder, and I think those are times we're in now. He says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears as they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Those times are coming. So while it's good and while the waves haven't gotten so big, partake now in what you need to get. But he says, verse five, as for you, don't, don't, be, don't be concerned about all the people that are leaving and going astray. What you need to be focused on is something different. You, you need to be sober-minded, always sober-minded. Think clearly about these things. Don't be compelled or moved by your emotions or dissuaded by their logical arguments. No, no, no. You need to be sober-minded, thinking on what is true. Be sober-minded. And, and when those things come up against you and they challenge you, it says you need to endure the suffering. The, the long, hard labor that it takes to keep going with work, endure it. Do the work of an evangelist. Send the ships out from the dock. 
Be stable, be sober-minded, endure the suffering as the waves are crashing on you, but don't just give up there. Keep doing the work. Preach the word, rebuke, exhort, correct. Fulfill your ministry. God has given us all the work that he wants us to accomplish. Fulfill it, do it, do it with excellence. And then Paul says, is that essentially what he's done? He says in verse six, he says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. I have given everything I have for this work. And, and the time of my departure, the time of his death has come. He, he's, he's laying up in a prison and he's looking back on his life and he's saying, even now, I, I am being poured out right now. I'm giving it my all. I'm writing even you this letter to encourage you. I'm working in the Lord. My time has come. And he, he recounts his life and he says in verse seven, I have fought the good fight. That's labor, that's energy, that's increasing and it's hard. I finished the race. It's a toil. It's hard. It's difficult. But he's gotten to the end of it. I've kept the faith. We need to have that kind of sense about us that we, we need to persist in this regardless of the circumstance. Whether you're in a prison and you're not making an impact or you're Timothy who's doing the work in the context of the church and you're preaching, whether that's in your family, your workplace, in the context of the church, whatever it is you're doing, keep doing it. Do it well. Fight the faith. Run the race, fulfill your ministry, preach the word, don't be discouraged. Because in verse eight, as Paul recounts at the end of his life, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to those who loved his appearing. He's telling this young pastor, he's saying, you know what, I've done all this work, I've struggled, I've laid... I've worked harder than anybody else. I've kept the faith. I've been established. I've been firm. I have not wavered and I've kept going and there's a crown waiting for me. And guess what, Timothy? There's a crown waiting for you as well. All those who love his appearing and labor in his work and do not grow weary or disenchanted or lose the position of being rooted and grounded in the faith, those people, they're gonna get a reward too. Doesn't matter how fruitful and productive your labor is. Your labor is to the Lord. And in the Lord, because of his perseverance, your works will persevere and you will be rewarded for it. We need to really treasure even the words of Christ in this day and age to not be discouraged. Because, you know, it really does break my heart when I see Christians discouraged in their work. They say, you know, I've been witnessing to my friend for so many years and I just can't do it anymore. Uh, it just breaks my heart. You know, I've been serving in this ministry and it's just gotten, it's gotten too hard. I don't want to do it anymore, right? I've attended this Bible study, but you know, it's not working for me anymore. I just, I just, I'm going to do something. I'm, I'm just going to stop. I'm going to throw the towel in because I'm weary and it's not effective and it's not fruitful. It breaks my heart. Or when they're looking at the culture and they're saying, you know what, the attacks and the, the assaults on me in my workplace and my job, even in my own family, they're too much for me. It's easier for me to concede to their thinking than it is for me to continue to remain steadfast. You need to listen to the words of Jesus who says, blessed are you. You should be happy. Count yourself blessed. When people hate you and when they exclude you and they revile and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man, be happy about that. He says even more so, rejoice in that day. I mean, rejoice and leap for joy. Be, be, be happy about it. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. The reality is, is that we are gonna face difficulty because of the culture. And in these difficult times, it's gonna get harder. But we need to have that kind of perspective that we're rejoicing and that we're excited and that we are doing the work of the Lord knowing that there's a reward for it because it's in Christ. Um, I grew up in, in the mountains. I grew up in, in Lake Arrowhead and I learned to drive in the mountains on those crazy, turny, twisty, switchbacky roads. I learned to drive my little car on those mountain roads, the 138, if anybody knows that road, as my parents took me on. Worst road ever to learn how to drive. And... Um, 
it was a little scary learning how to drive, but once I, once I got the hang of it, I was undeterred. I mean, I really was undeterred. I was like, okay, it's an acceptable level of risk here. I'm going to go out and I'm going to drive on these roads and I, I've got it figured out. And so I would go do my daily business. I would go to the store and I would, I, I would go around town. I'd go to work, do the things I need to do. Driving, not a big deal. And uh, that, that all changes though, based on the circumstances, because one of the things about living up in the mountains is it also snows. And all of a sudden, those twisty, turny, up and down hilly roads, when they're covered with a foot of snow or a layer of black ice, feel a lot different. I mean, the challenge becomes much more difficult. And, and to be honest, I became deterred. I mean, every time it snowed, the first thought, I'd open the, the blinds in the morning and I'd be like, I'm going to call in sick. Like, it's not worth it, right? I, I, I don't need to go to the store today. I'll wait out the storm. Right? I, don't, I don't need to do this work. It's too much labor. It's too much effort. And you know, it's too precarious. It's too dangerous. I'm not going to engage. And, and you know, it made a lot of sense to me because I'm like, it's warmer in here. I can light a fire. I'm not going to be cold. It's not going to be as strenuous. It's not going to be as hard. Like, this all makes sense. Like, it's all logical. Like, it, it's coherent. I'm like, I'm with it. This is good. And there are days that that would happen and I don't feel too bad about it. But here's the problem. The problem is, is during that season, I was also a pastor in a church. And uh, I don't know if you know this, but sometimes it snows on Saturday night or Sunday morning. <laughs> and I would wake up on those mornings and let me tell you, those same thoughts came into my head. Like, man, it's warm in here. It'd be a lot of work to do church. And I start to justify so many things. Like, you know what? It's not gonna be that impactful. You know why? Because it's gonna be like 25% of the church is gonna sh show up on a snowy day. So there's gonna be less people there. So, you know, maybe my effort's not worth it. And you know, all the energy and effort to get there for that small amount of people, uh, I mean, what's the big deal? And you know what? There's not going to be any new people there, no visitors, so no one's going to get saved. And so what's the big deal? No significant impact, right? Like, we're not going to go. And I was like, I'm a job. I was like, supposed to go. And, and you might be thinking, like, this sounds hypothetical, like, you never did this. No, I did this. Like, I, I called the senior pastor and was like, can we cancel church? <laughs> like, no one's going to die, right? Like, no one's going to die if we cancel church. Like, well, they'll be here next week, like when it's sunny. And there were times that we actually canceled church. But there was also times where we didn't. And we wake up on a Sunday morning and there'd be a foot of snow on the ground and I'd have to wake up two hours early. I'd have to go shovel my driveway with all my gear on in the freezing cold. And my driveway's like 100 feet long, literally. Take me two hours to clear my driveway. Then I'd get underneath my car cold, wet hands, put my chains on, drive to church, 25 to 50 people there. We do the service and we do the work. It took a lot more energy. It took a lot more labor. It took a lot more effort. It took a lot more toil. Now, if you're going to ask me which days, looking back now, I feel better about the days where we canceled church and I sat on my couch with my wife watching TV on a in a blanket with a fireplace going, or the days where I labored to do the work of the Lord, knowing that it was the right thing to do, the good thing to do, which, which one do I feel better about? Uh, it's, it's doing the work of the Lord. But really the question is, which one am I more excited to stand before the Lord on judgment day and receive a reward? Which, which one am I more excited about? Well, I'm definitely more excited about the work that we did. Was it the most impactful work? It, it, it wasn't. But we did it. And we labored and we persisted and we did it to the Lord, knowing that's the work he called us to do. And we persisted in it. And so when I hold those two options up, I hope that you can think of scenarios in your own life where you're saying, you know what? Of course, there's been times where I've called it in and I've decided it's not worth it. And there's been times where you haven't and you've been tenacious and you've gone after it and you've pursued it and you've kept working in the Lord. I hope you realize in the midst of all that that it has significance and value and purpose and it was better and that you would seek those times more than these other times for your own comfort, or your own joy, or your own ease to do the work of the Lord because the Lord has redeemed you and he's called you to this and it's to him and for his glory. So let us be people who are unmoved, unmoved in the midst of this culture, unmoved against the waves, unmoved and established in truth let us root ourselves deeper in that. Let's increase our effort and labor knowing that it's not in vain, that it has significance and it's for the Lord. Would you guys stand with me as I dismiss you in a word of prayer?
God, help us to have the perspective that we need that is given to us in this passage, that we should not be undeterred by the waves that are crashing all around us in our culture. God, give us that spirit of tenacity to increase our labor for you, knowing that it is to you and for you and by you that we're even able to work and live and move and have our being. And God, that you have prepared good works for us to do in advance, and we want to walk in them. We want to walk in them faithfully, working harder than we even think we can for your sake and for your glory. God, help us to be like the good steward who doesn't bury his talents in the sand, but who uses them in fruitful labor, seeking to see your kingdom advanced. And regardless of whether we see the fruit from that or not, God, we pray that you would be honored with our labor, that we'd be diligent in it. And God, we do look forward to that day where we will receive our rewards and the greatest of all rewards of being in your presence, united with you, without a body of sin, glorified like you are glorified because of the resurrection. God, we look forward to that day. But in the midst of this time from now to that day, God, we pray that you would give us more energy, more zeal, more passion to do what is right and to never cave and to never be moved in the truth because we want to honor you with our lives. God, we ask you that you would do these things in our lives this week and for the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.